if you were to read a choose your own adventure book from cover to cover, ignoring the prompts at the bottom of the pages. It'd be chaos. You'd just be reading straight through sequentially, and you'd be like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, at one point, the main character dies. On the very next page, he's alive again. You're jumping from past to present to future all over the place because you've ignored the instructions. Well, similar to how you must understand how a choose-your-own-adventure book works in order for it to make sense, the same could be said for these last four chapters of 2 Samuel. Thus far, through chapters 1 to 20, it's been a very sequential, chronological order through the book. It all makes sense. It's all going chronologically through the life of David. But when you get to chapter 21, things get a little strange. In fact, a lot of commentators have called chapters 21 to 24 an appendix because they don't really make sense as far as the chronology of the book goes. Uh, you'll see, even today, that it goes from like David's past to his last words, back to his past again, and you're jumping all over the place. And if you were just trying to read it sequentially, it'd be a little confusing. So the author here is not concerned so much with chronology as he is making a theological point, and he makes use of what is called a chiasm. I'm going to demonstrate what a chiasm is here for you in just a second, but it is a way of organizing information in pairs or groups of two. So just to be clear, this is not something that I observed myself. I'm relying pretty heavily actually on someone by the name of Grace Coe. Uh, she actually is the inspiration for the chiasm you're about to see. I saw several of these. Hers made the most sense, was the most clear as to how this information has been arranged. So hopefully as I demonstrate it, it'll make sense what's going on here with these last four chapters. The beginning of chapter 21, where we have turned to today, is a judgment on Saul's sin. Seems a little strange that Saul would be mentioned at the end of a book talking about David, but that's kind of the point. It doesn't quite make chronological sense. Then immediately following that, there is a list of David's warriors. Then there is David's psalm of praise. Then we have David's last words. Another list of David's mighty men. And then to round it all off, the very end of the book, the last chapter, the last 25 verses there ends with a judgment on David's sin. Now I hope that you can see by the way I, I arranged this, that all of this information is grouped in pairs. Do you see that? Letter A at the top and letter A at the bottom almost mirror each other. Then the letter Bs, there's a list of David's warriors, his mighty men, and right in the center of these last four chapters, we have David's psalm of praise and his last words. And the purpose or intent of organizing the information in this way is almost to serve as a funnel. You can almost see the funnel there on the screen. It gets more and more narrow as you get to letter C. The idea being that the most important information of this whole section is right there in the center. So we could work through this sequentially, just chapter 21 to chapter 24, but I think to get the full emphasis of what the author is doing here, we're actually gonna kind of bounce around and go back and forth and hit the parallels as they occur. I hope that's not too, too confusing but I would like us to begin at the letter A's and just work towards the middle and see the point that maybe is the whole point of 2 Samuel. So, 
beginning with these first two letter A's. We're in chapter 21. Let's read the first couple of verses. 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Let's pause there for just a second. The mention of the people of Gibeon is a serious throwback to something else in Scripture. Does anyone remember where we would have heard of the Gibeonites before? I'll be pretty impressed. Yes, 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 yes. When Joshua is conquering the land of Canaan, the Gibeonites, they see Israel destroy Jericho. They see Israel destroy Ai, and they're like, uh, yikes, we're next. And so they go through this elaborate deception. They wear clothes that have holes in them. They have shoes that are really worn down. In their lunchbox, they have stale food, and they come to Joshua, and they say, hey, uh, we've heard about your exploits. We've come from really far away, wink, wink, to make a treaty with you. If you ever happen to get up to our neck of the woods, which again is really far away from here, would you spare us? Would you make an alliance with us? And Joshua falls for their deception and he says, sure, only to find out that these people are like his neighbors. And he's made a treaty with the very people that God had said to wipe out. And, but because he's done that, he can't make good on God's command to just totally eliminate the Canaanites, so he instead makes them his servants. And it seems that the Gibeonites are his servants up until now. I'm not sure how many years have passed, but even the text mentions uh, that Israel had sworn to spare them. However, Saul, for whatever reason, has a different idea, right? This text tells us that Saul takes it upon himself to start knocking these people off. He starts wiping out the Gibeonites. And there's a very real ramifications for his actions. We're told in verse 1 that because of his actions there, a famine occurs in the days of David for three years. David realizes something divine is going on. This famine continues and he seeks the face of the Lord. And God tells him, hey, this is happening because of Saul's actions with the Gibeonites. Let's look at verse 3. David seeks to make amends. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David insisted, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, I'll give them. As reparations for Saul's actions, 
of killing the Gibeonites, David says, hey, what would you guys like in return so we can put an end to this famine? And the guys at first are hesitant. They're like, no, no, we don't need anything. And David's like, no, really, what will make amends here? And they say, give us seven of Saul's sons. They want to kill these guys. But notice who David does not give them in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And even though Jonathan is dead, David is still demonstrating his faithfulness to Jonathan. You know, Mephibosheth was one of the eligible sons of Saul who could have been given over to the Gibeonites to be killed because of Saul's actions, and David spares him. We've seen David's continued friendship to Jonathan throughout this book, and here's just another instance of that. Verse 14 tells us that after these guys are given over to them, the very last sentence of verse 14 says, after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And it seems as if things go back to normal. God required justice. David made it happen. And we assume that it rains again, the crops grow. But there was this judgment on Saul's sin. Let's look at David's sin and the judgment that occurs there. Let's turn to the very end of the book, chapter 24. Again, we'll just read the first couple verses. We read again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. It appears, as verse 1 says, that the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. For what? We don't know, but they are deserving of judgment. And the catalyst for this judgment on the people of Israel is God is going to, the text says, incite David to take a census, to number the people. Now, that seems a little bit strange to us. Why is numbering the people wrong? There is some speculation on the matter. Some people think that David was numbering his warriors so that he could, like, be secure in his men and say, whoa, look at me. I've got all these guys who fight for me. It's a very proud, arrogant mindset. Some people say that what David was doing was ignoring uh, this command that is in Exodus. Uh, God actually says every time you take a census, it should be accompanied by a tax. And some people think that maybe what David did not do here is tax the people. I think it was going to be used as an offering for the Lord. Maybe he neglected that. We're not really told what is wrong here about numbering the people, only that after David discovers that he has 1.3 million men in his army, that he's convicted of his wrongdoing. Look at verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And as a result of David's sin, like a terrible choose-your-own-adventure book, God actually is going to let David choose his own punishment. 
That's found for us in verses 12 and 13. The prophet Gad comes to David and he says, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Gad tells David, hey, your pick. Three years of famine, three months of conflict with your enemies, or three days of pestilence at the hand of God. Now, if you've been tracking with this story up to this point, maybe there's something about this whole thing that makes you a little uncomfortable that you haven't quite been able to reconcile in your mind, what is the source of that discomfort? Anyone able to articulate what's maybe gnawing at you a little bit? Who was it that this text says moved David to take the census? Yeah, Marilyn said God. And yet, from our perspective... David is being punished for something that God moved him to do. See how that's a little confusing? Maybe we're remembering what is said in James 1, that God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. And yet it sure seems that what's happening here is God says, uh, I'm going to incite David to do something, and when he does it, he's going to have some consequences for it could be a little unnerving for us to think about were there not a parallel passage. And I want us all to turn there this morning. Hold your finger here in 2 Samuel and turn over to 1 Chronicles 21. First Chronicles 21, this is the parallel passage, gives us the exact same story, except I want you to look at verse 1 and tell me who it is that this text attributes to inciting David to take the census. Yeah. Did you guys all see it there in verse 1? Now it says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So rather than this being a contradiction, like, well, who was it? Was it God or was it Satan that was at work here? I actually think that this parallel provides just a relief. It it, it makes this passage uh, much more clear to us. Um, Remember from 2 Samuel, we're told that God is angry at Israel. God doesn't get angry for no reason. Obviously, they have committed sin that needed to be judged. And in, as part of initiating that judgment, God is going to allow Satan to incite Israel to sin. Specifically, to incite David to sin. I don't see this as too dissimilar from what we see in the book of Job where when Job has all of these tragedies befall him, we have the behind-the-scenes look at it was Satan 
who brought all of these contra- er, excuse me, who brought all of these um, conflicts and hardships into Job's life, right? It was Satan who was allowed to do all these things, but the key word there is he was allowed. It was God who gave Satan the authority to bring harm upon Job and in his family. I think that is very similar to what we have going on here. God, in his sovereignty, judges Israel because of David's sin, but he allowed, in his sovereignty, Satan to tempt David. I hope that makes sense. I hope how you can see all three of those things at play. I think the book of Job was very helpful in understanding, in my mind, how this all makes sense. James is right. God does not tempt anyone. But he does allow Satan to do certain things, to accomplish his purposes. And I think that's what we're seeing here. David has to select the consequence for his actions. And he finds himself in this unenviable position in which what he decides the people under him will suffer from. And he says, well, I'm looking around. Look at verse 14. We'll let David tell us his selection. Back in 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, we read, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David thinks to himself, given the choice between uh, three, mo- three years of famine, three months of combat with my enemies, or three days of pestilence from the hand of God, I will throw myself on the mercy of God for those three days. His mercy is great. I know my enemies. They're not going to let up. But God, he's merciful. And so that's what David chooses. We might be inclined to scratch our heads at God's mercy at first because verse 15 tells us that the angel of the Lord moves from Dan to Beersheba and kills 70 thousand men. And this number is already that high before verse 16 says he even gets to Jerusalem. 70,000 people are dead before the angel of the Lord even gets to Jerusalem, what I imagine is the most populous city. That number is only going to skyrocket when he gets there. And then we read verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord is by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And what David hoped and knew about God proved to be true. Here's this angel of the Lord wiping out all of these people, 70,000, hasn't even come to Jerusalem yet. And God stays his hand. God proves himself to be merciful. I think there is cause for even great joy for us. As we considered just a couple of weeks ago, that that God does not always punish us to the extent that our sins deserve. We saw that throughout the Old Testament. God even did that with David the first time around when the prophet Nathan says to him, you shall not die. Here again, these people experience God's mercy and not being punished to the extent that he very well could have punished them. And the end of this chapter just ends with uh, the revelation that where the angel of the Lord stopped is where the temple is actually built. 
David buys this piece of property and the temple is built there by Solomon. But from this first set of parallels, we should just be thinking maybe a theme that has rung true throughout this study that sin has serious consequences. And we've seen it at the level even of the king. Both Saul and David commit these sins that have a ripple effect that even affects the people under them. In Saul's case, it was famine for three years, seven of his sons being killed. In David's case, it was 70,000 people being killed. And we're just struck by this idea. Sin has serious consequences. And this is the king that is committing these sins. How would you like to live under the leadership of a king whose actions affect you? No, thanks. I don't want to suffer for decisions you make. When we come to the second set of parallels, this one will be really brief. We have a list of David's warriors, the list of his mighty men. I remember reading this when I was a kid. Um, and, and like some of these like feats of strength are astonishing. It's awesome. Let me just list off some of the things that happen here. Chapter 21 describes four of David's soldiers who each kill a Philistine giant. So there's more giants than just Goliath, and these guys are taking him out. Chapter 23 describes one guy who kills a lion, another guy who kills 800 people at once, another who kills 300 with his spear. And there's a certain level of like awe and appreciation for what these guys are able to accomplish. And yet understanding that this takes place in a chiasm with intent, the list of these warriors and mighty men has more significance than just leaving us thinking, whoa, these guys are pretty cool. It's moving us towards something. It's helping us realize that, you know what? As chapter 23 takes care to say, and the commentators have pointed this out, these guys' feats of strength are because God was with them. The Lord was working out these victories. And so as we're reading about these mighty men, we should not be thinking, whoa, these guys are awesome. We should be thinking, whoa, God is pretty awesome. And God, in spite of his king's unfaithfulness, really, we've seen Saul be unfaithful, David be unfaithful. God is still surrounding David with men who do these awesome feats of strength who advanced David's kingdom, God is being good to David even in spite of himself. God's faithfulness should just be very apparent to us as we're reading through this. It should be obvious. David isn't a self-made man. God has raised up others to aid him. The one constant through all of this has been the Lord. He's provided. He's been just. He's been merciful. And we wonder, we can see this throughout the text, Does David know? Does David know what God is doing behind the scenes in spite of his own shortcomings? This is part of what makes David so awesome is that he does. Look at that first letter C in chapter 22. We'll turn, turn there together. 2 Samuel 22. Maybe you have a header there that says David's song of deliverance, it's uh, pretty apparent that David realizes who is behind all of his success. Let's just look at the first four verses. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. 
and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. It is really apparent David knows who it is that is behind his success. Let's just go back through and let me just scan all of like the adjectives or descriptors that, God sa- that David says about God. He calls God his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his God, his rock again, my refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold, refuge again, my savior. In four verses, David has called God all of these things. He says, God, I am only here because of you. Let's jump down to verse 32. We'll see this again. Verse 32. David says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength. For the battle, you made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. Again, David is taking great care to say here, all of these things, even these great feats that I've done, are because of you, Lord. I'm only here because of your provision. We can look back and think on all of the awesome things David did, killing a lion and a bear when he was a shepherd, killing Goliath, all of these great feats of strength. And we might be tempted to conclude, David is pretty great. He's a military genius. And David would be the first to say, no, 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 no. This is God. This is God working through me, establishing me, providing for me. And I think there's a little bit of application for us to consider here. Are we humble enough to consider that we are where we are at today because of God's provision in our life? I think sometimes we like to think, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I grinded to get here. I've gotten higher education. I've worked long hours. I've networked well. I've saved. I've, 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 I've. And yet the conclusion from David here is... No, 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 no. Even the good things that it seems that I have done are only true because God is with me. And I think we need to be humble enough as Christians to consider that. That the good things we have, the good things we've accomplished are because of the Lord and his provision and him being behind all of these things and blessing them. It'd be very arrogant to assume that we have gotten to where we are because we're pretty awesome. The whole point of this psalm is no, God is awesome. Let's look at David's last words briefly in chapter 23. A 
coming to the tail end of David's life, and he has some last words here, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And here David says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And I want us to particularly focus our attention on verses 3 and 4, because it is here that what we have described called the ideal king. When we think of ideal, we should think of like the model There is a king or a model king described for us in verses 3 and 4, particularly the end of verse 3, the one who rules justly over men, who rules in the fear of God. You cannot name two better attributes for a ruler than that he fears God and is just. And when those things are true of a king, David says in verse 4, it is like dawn It is like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout. When a king fears God and is just, it is a joy to be under the leadership of that king. It is an awesome thing. And I think the question begs to be asked, was David this ideal king? Yeah, I'm getting that head shake from Mike. David's kind of a mixed bag, isn't he? For the first half of 2 Samuel, there was a lot of good to be said about him. Right? I mean, this is the guy who at the news of Saul, his enemy's death, tears his clothes, sings a song about Saul, just praising him, kills the guy who claims to have killed Saul. He does the very next, in the very like next couple of chapters, he does the same thing for Ishbosheth another one of his enemies, we're like, whoa, David is awesome. Then the story takes a turn for the worse. We saw today that David takes the census in which 70,000 people are killed. We see David get angry at God for when Uzzah touches the ark and God kills him. Perhaps the biggest, most uh, egregious sin is when David commits that adultery with Bathsheba. And it just spirals out of control. We see David's family just unravel after this. His sons murdering each other, uh, the incest that takes place in his house, uh, Absalom overthrowing him. We have this ideal king and we're kind of left scratching our head like, Did David even really meet this mark that he has set here? The reality is, is that David is the best that it gets to. 
from here on out as we transition into Kings and Chronicles and read more and more about the Kings, there's going to be that pretty uh, unfortunate repeated phrase that appears that this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're left maybe asking the question, is David really the best king the scriptures have to offer? David references something in verse 5 that I'd like us to look at again. He asks the question, For does not my house stand so with God? He has made with me an everlasting covenant. And it was back in chapter 7 that we looked at this covenant that God made with David. It had several terms or conditions, we might say. God said, David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. And your kingdom is going to last forever. An offspring of yours is going to sit on the throne forever. In fact, here's the exact verbiage of it. David says, excuse me, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we see a partial fulfillment of this as the kings progress. A lot of them, the ones in Judah especially, are descendants of David. It does seem as if his throne is established forever. For generations afterward, a descendant of David does sit on the throne in Judah. And yet eventually, The sins pile so high that God says, enough. And Babylon comes and hauls off the kings, hauls off the people, and that's the end of it. That there's no more descendant of David who sits on a throne. Until, of course, there's this young, betrothed woman who receives a message from an angel that she will be pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit and have a son. And the description of this son is awesome. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And this is the beauty of 2 Samuel. Because here in chapter 7 of this book, in which we have a king who is really the best of the Old Testament, but still a mixed bag, we have hope of a better king, Jesus. And the whole Old Testament is pointing us towards the arrival of this king. In fact, Isaiah gives us this. Looked at it last week. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And notice who he's connected to. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Again, notice the two things that are mentioned. Justice righteousness, 
from this time forth and forevermore. The king who is described here in chapter 23 of fearing God, ruling justly, is the king who's anticipated in Isaiah, who's going to rule with justice and righteousness, not just for 40 years like David did, but forevermore. And that is the hope of 2 Samuel. There's a better king coming. I think that's encouraging for us. God was mapping this out from long before Christ was even born. And he gives us little clues, and we see them here in 2 Samuel. That's the end of the book. That's David's life. I I think Kings contains a little bit more about David. Chronicles will as well. But really, this whole book is about him. And to be honest, some of this is intimidating. If someone had told us, we're going to record all the acts of your life, good, bad, and ugly, in a book, we'd be like, "Uh, no, no, thank you. And yet that's what we have here with David. As I reflect back on the book, I think perhaps the lesson that sticks out most to me from the whole of 2 Samuel is that sin has serious consequences. I, I just trust that was apparent from David's life. One fateful evening, one giving in to the lusts of his flesh, ruined the lives of his kids, totally derailed his life, Uh, I've thought about this in my own personal time, like what consequences am I facing to this day um, because of decisions that I've made? And uh, I think that is really valuable for us to consider even uh, past the length of this study. Any final comments from 2 Samuel as we uh, wrap up the book here? Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its timelessness. Thank you for showing us Christ, even from this book. Um, We long for a day in which he will rule with justice and righteousness forever. Um, We've seen a lot of injustice and a lot of unrighteousness in our rulers, and we're ready for the perfect king to come and rule and reign forever. Thank you for your son. Uh, Thank you for the hope that we have in him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.